Good morning. Great to see everybody today. We are going to conclude the book of Daniel this morning. We're going to go all the way from chapters 8 to chapter 12. We're just going to hit the highlights. This is uh, some of the most incredible uh, Bible passages that we will ever confront. And so this morning we're going to focus on influence. This is a great weekend to talk about influence. We think about Martin Luther King Jr. and all the influence that he has had upon this country. We think about his namesake, Martin Luther, who had a tremendous amount of influence upon the church. And this morning we talk about Daniel. Daniel, who was a person of tremendous influence. And why was he so influential? So we're going to talk about that this morning. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk on wine. Don't get drunk on alcohol. Instead, be filled with the Spirit of God. What's it really trying to say to us? When somebody is uh, pulled over or whatever, arrested for drinking too much, they say you can't, be, you can't be driving under the what? The influence. And so all that's being said here in this scripture is that the number one thing that should be influencing our lives, you know, for God in this world is God. So the first thing I'd like you to write down here is be influenced by God and for God. And we're going to take a look at how Daniel was influenced by God and for God in this world. So we have a lot to say this morning. I'm going to try to just to uh, keep my comments focused and not go down any bunny trails. When you hear me this morning and I have the Bible open and I'm reading, it's, it's biblical history what I'll be reading. When I'm commenting and I'm not reading right out of the Bible, it's because of sources outside the Bible. I didn't want that to be confusing. You might be saying, yeah, well, John, you're saying all that is proved because the Bible is proving the Bible itself. No, what I'm talking about is we're going to talk about history this morning and we're talking about all these fulfillments that take place. And when you see me reading the Bible, it's the Bible. When you hear me talking, it's secular history or sources outside the Bible that we have that confirm what the Bible has predicted. Sound cool? Wonderful. Let's pray because we surely do need God's help. Lord, uh, be with us this morning and help us to understand the kind of influence in this world that you want us to be, that we need to be, because our world, our lives, our families, our community, on and on the list goes, really needs it. Speak something to us today, God. We need to, we need to hear from you. Now, we've all come together this morning. We've got different, we have different needs, different problems, different questions that we want to be answered. So, God, we come to you, we come to your word, and we ask that you would speak whatever it is that we personally need to hear from you today, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. All right, what would you think is the most controversial chapter in the entire book of Daniel? What would your guess be? Would your guess be from Daniel chapter 2 that young Daniel as a teenager, that he stands up and interprets this thing for the king when all the other people in the learning center of the world at that time, Babylon, when these guys have been studying for a long time, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70 years old, they can't answer, and here comes this young boy, he answers. You might say, man, that's controversial. Or you might say, no, that doesn't bother me at all. But what bothers me is that, you know, that fiery furnace situation and those three guys that walk through the fire, that bothers me. Or you might say... How about Daniel in the lion's den? I don't believe that. you got a bunch of hungry lions. Daniel goes down there, no problem. And then, you know, they throw, you know, the people who were accusing him, they go down, they get all eaten up. That's crazy to me. You know, none of that is the most controversial in all of Daniel. What we will study today is the most controversial, and here's the reason why. Daniel chapter 11 has drawn the greatest criticism of all chapters in Daniel. Why? Because 
what we and we can't look at all of this today, but the specific, the detailed predictions, prophecies and how they came exactly true. One commentator has said in Daniel chapter 11 alone, one hundred and thirty five detailed prophecies have already taken place. And so people say there is no way in the world somebody could have. I mean, you know, you might, you know, you might get a generality, but he was so spot on 135 times it freaks people out and they say that can't happen so we'll talk a little bit about that this morning i kind of feel like when i was reviewing it this past week i remember when i was in my 20s i was serving a church and we had one of our youth uh come in a teenager high schooler come in and they brought a bunch of their friends who didn't go to the church they brought them in and when we got done the service that night all the friends that came up to me and were saying the same thing. Oh, yeah, the Bible, that's nothing. It's just, you know, whatever. It's just another thing. There's a guy named Nostradamus, and he predicted all this stuff, and all this stuff has come true, too. And I'm thinking, man, who is Nostradamus? Why am I so out of it? And they're just going on and on. So I did some research on this guy, Nostradamus. And then I come to find out, and I don't know if you're a Nostradamus fan or whatever, but, you know, it's just a bunch of mess and generalities that he comes up very, very weak. And what it reminded me of was Crocodile Dundee. Now, that's about the dumbest. I'm sorry if you're a Crocodile Dundee fan. If I've offended you because you're a Nostradamus fan or a Crocodile Dundee fan, you know, I'm sorry already. Give me a chance. I'll offend everybody in the gym before the morning's out. All right. That's, that's the dumbest movie I've ever seen. I remember one part of that very stupid movie when he was on the street. I think it was in New York City, right? And somebody came up to rob him, and they pulled out this switchblade. has a blade on it like this. And he looks at the blade. He said, you call that a knife? And he pulls out this hunting knife. It's got a blade on it like this. He says, oh, that's a knife. I feel like Daniel's saying to Nostradamus, you call that a prophecy? Let me show you what a prophecy is. And so this is what we're going to talk about this morning, Dan, chapter 11. All right, look, um, if you have version, you want to pull that out uh, on your little thing, on your phone, okay? Or if you have a Bible, the old-fashioned way, you, ought to, you, you want to do that too because I, there's no way I could list all these scriptures here. So I'm just going to read some of these. Let's check out verses 1 to 3 of Daniel chapter 8. And you want to write this in on your outline, Daniel, because it's important to get the time frames, right? 551 B.C. is when this happens. 551 is when Daniel is receiving this prophecy. And there's more details given about the Persian and Greek Empire. You might say, John, didn't we talk about this already in Daniel? Persian and Greek. Yes. Actually, this is the third time that Daniel brings it up. Here's the reason why. Maybe some of you had parents. And they had to tell you things more than once. Anybody have a parent that told you things more than once? Okay. All right. So God is saying this is really important. So I'm not going to tell you just once. I'm going to tell you three times actually before we're done. He's going to tell us like five times the same story over. And he gives us more details every single time. Chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. And what is he doing? What is he doing there in this dream? Because at that time, this city was like nothing. And so what he's saying is that eventually it's going to become the capital of the Medes and the Persians, the Persian Empire. And at that time, that wasn't even the case. So that was kind of fascinating in itself. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susan, the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. I looked up, and before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. Let's talk about the Medes and the Persian, this great world power. Right now, Babylon, Babylon's in charge. 
And he, what he's saying is, is they're going to become another power in charge. It's going to be the Medes and Persians. They're going to knock off the Babylonians. And one horn is short but grows longer. That's exactly what happened. Historically true that the Persian side of it just it, it springs up, becomes much larger than the Mede side of it. And so this, this happens. We see this takes place. Now, verse 5 through 8 says this. As I was thinking about this, so he's thinking about that, that ram. The ram is the Mede and Persian Empire. And we're told, you want to write this in, it conquers north, south, and west. That's what the scripture says. And that's historically true. They never went east. They never went towards India. Greece, Greece did, but... But the Medes and Persians never did. North, south, and west. This is what it says. Verse 5 to 8. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Who do you think he's talking about there? He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged him. How? How is he charged at him? In great rage. Why is he in great rage? I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. All right, so the, the, the goat, let me read you verses 21 and 22. Flip over, if you will, with me, if you have to flip. Uh, 21 and 22 of chapter 8 says this. He calls, he calls him a shaggy goat. Uh, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace is the one that broken off and represent four kingdoms that emerged from his nation. You might be saying, hey, man, John, you're losing me. This is really actually quite simple. This is Alexander the Great, the king of Greece. I don't know why we're calling him a shaggy goat. I don't think he'd be happy with us calling him a shaggy goat, but he's a shaggy goat here. All right. And so what happens is we're told he attacks the ram in great rage. So here's what happens in the Persian Empire, the fourth king of the Persian Empire, and this is all said right here in the Bible, predicts it before it happens, that the fourth king of the Persian Empire would attack Greece. And the fourth king of the Persian Empire, historically true, was the most powerful portion of the Persian Empire. He attacks Greece. They burn Athens. They so embitter the Greek people that uh, Alexander the Great's father's whole goal in life was to one day make them pay for what they did. And he was assembling an army to do that when he dies. And he instills that bitterness into his son. And so, as we read right here, he attacks with great rage. They go after it. And they just completely destroy the Persian Empire. Now, Alexander the Great, let's talk about him for just one second. Probably one of the greatest military strategists ever. We're told here that he crosses the earth with, like the shaggy oak, without the feet touching the ground. Look. What he did is unheard of. He conquered the known world, 1.5 million square miles. He conquers it in how many years, anybody? Three. Three years. No planes, no tanks, all on foot. We can't do that today. It is phenomenal what he does, and that's when the Scripture says he does it like his feet don't even touch the ground. It is incredible what he does. Now, his father was a great military strategist himself, and he puts that into his son, but he also gets him a personal tutor. Does anybody know the name of Alexander's personal tutor? Yell it out. Pretty famous guy, Aristotle. Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great. So 
All of this stuff is predicted. Now, let me say this. When Alexander the Great is marching through, when he's marching through to, you know, he's going to attack the Persian Empire, and he's just flooding, he's going, all right, he's headed on his way. He comes upon Jerusalem, and we're told by Josephus, who is a source, a historian outside of the Bible, we're told this, that when he gets to Jerusalem, and he surrounds Jerusalem, the high priest of Jerusalem comes out waving a white flag. Of course, you're going to wave a white because you're getting ready to get destroyed. So he comes out waving a white flag, and he goes up to Alexander, and he opens the book of Daniel, according to a secular historian. He opens the book of Daniel, and he says to Alexander, I want to read a passage to you. And he reads a passage in the Bible that describes Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is so dumbfounded by what he's heard. He says, okay, I'm not going to attack you. Now check this out. He says to them, you don't have to pay taxes. I'm not going to destroy you, and you can worship your God any way you want. I'm leaving. Is that pretty cool or what? I thought that was pretty doggone cool. All right. Uh, one last thing I read, need to read you. Chapter 8, verses 23 and 25 is very important because it talks about a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means illustrious one or manifested one. He get, that's a nickname he gave himself because he did not think he was God, but he thought he was the manifestation of God on earth. Antiochus Epiphanes, he's from the Greek Empire. All right. Antiochus Epiphanes is the prototype of the Antichrist. Verses 23 and 25 of chapter 8 say this about him. In the latter part of their reign, the Greek Empire, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, which is saying here that this guy is very, very clever and very, very deceptive. A master of intrigue will rise. He's going to become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to talk about him more in just a second, but let's just draw some similarities between him and the Antichrist. There is a figure in the Bible that's talked about who is called the Antichrist, who is yet to come. And Antiochus Epiphanes, a, a similarity is drawn here because both of them come from very humble beginnings and they rise up. Both of them are very deceptive and very clever. And they rise up. Both of them desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. Both of them, their persecution, their wrath reigns in Jerusalem for exactly seven years. That's how long it lasted for Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's how long it's going to last for the Antichrist. That's why he's a prototype. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. You want to write this in. He has this vision in 538 B.C. And what we find here is a timeline to the Messiah. A timeline to the long-awaited Savior of the world. We call him Jesus Christ. Now, to, to understand uh, what's going on as we begin this, you have to understand that as we begin this chapter in 538 B.C., that now about almost 70 years are up. What does that mean? They've been in captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah had prophesied in 605 B.C., about 70 years prior, these words, Jeremiah 25, 11. The entire land will become desolate, a wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon. So in 605 Jeremiah prophesies this. We're 70 years into it. And Daniel says, up, oh, the time is almost up. Seven years up. So this is time 
to think about going back to Jerusalem. So he begins to pray about this. This is fascinating, everybody. So he gets these prophecies. He believes and trusts these prophecies. He knows it's time to go back. What does he do about it? Here's what he does about it. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer, in petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth, and in ashes. He is praying. What is he praying about? He is praying specifically about the fact that the city of Jerusalem itself is lying in ruins. And I want you to write this down because actually this becomes very, very important here. God is moved by prayer and fasting. I think you're going to get this. We're going to build this case as we go throughout this. God is moved by prayer and by fasting. His focus is on the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. It is lying in ruins. It is destroyed. And what Daniel is saying is God in this long prayer. You should take time to read it. We won't do it now. But he's saying, God, please. Will you put this city back together again? Is there any way? And God answers is not only am I going to rebuild the city, I'm going to revisit the city. I'm going to rebuild it. I'm going to revisit. And you might think to yourself, you know what? I know some people in their lives and their lives are completely shattered. Their lives are complete ruin. And they turn their hearts to God and ask God to rebuild their lives to put things back together, to visit them once again. And you might know some people, I know some people, who I've seen their lives have been completely rebuilt because they turned back to God and God turned their city, their own life that was in total destruction, God put it back together again. This is what's going on here. So he prays for this and then God answers. God is moved by his prayer and fasting. And write this down. God tells him this. He says, the Messiah will visit Jerusalem in 400 in 83 years what we're about to talk about now is what most people most scholars of the bible say is the most powerful the most clear the most compelling prophecy about jesus christ that we have in all the bible he says in 483 years the anointed one will show up let's read it it's in verses 24 to 26 of daniel chapter 9 and it says this 77. So you might say right off the bat, what in the world? You know, why, why do we have to use this flowery language? A seven here simply means a seven of something. And so in this case, this is seven years, 77s of years. So if you take 70 times all of these years, a series of seven years, you come up with a total of 490 years. We're only talking about the first 483 of it. Just not to confuse you. I sure already have. But simply saying this, we're only talking about 483 years. All right, it's very simple. It's decreed for your people and your holy city. Notice the attention on the city. To finish the transgression and to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Look, his people are completely devastated. They're captives, they're slaves, they've been brutalized, they've been hurt because they forsook God a long time ago and they did their own thing. Verse 25, no one understand this from the issuing. This is important, everybody, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, right? The ruler comes. There will be seven sevens and then 62 sevens. So there's going to be 69 times seven. It's 483. All right. It'll be 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. What does that mean? It's simply saying that the city will function again. The trenches are the waterways of a city, 
And all that God is saying, he says, you see that city in total desolation, like a bomb has gone off in the place and completely level. And I want you to know you're praying that this city would function as a regular city again. It is going to function. Your life and life will function in that city again. Maybe you felt that way sometimes. Is my life ever going to function again? Something's happened to you. It's blown up. And God says, yes, it can function again. It's all that's being said here is the city will once again function one day. It will be rebuilt with trenches, and, but, in, but it have times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one is going to be cut off and will have nothing. Let's stop right there. All right, let me see if I can make sense of this. 483 years. Here, everybody, very simple. From the time the decree, an official governmental decree is given, that it's okay to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, that's when the clock starts. So all we have to do is figure out when does the clock start. When is the decree given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem? And you count 483 years from that time, and the the anointed one, the Messiah, is supposed to show up. Here's our problem. Four different decrees were given by the Persian Empire that span a period of 90 years. All right? You might say, well, shoot. That's a real bummer. And it is. It is kind of a bummer. But I think, you know, there's some reasoning in all of that. So here's what we come up with. Sometime between B.C. 50 and A.D. 40, somebody, God Almighty, is supposed to show up in the city of Jerusalem and then be cut off, be destroyed, be murdered. The Messiah is going to come, going to be rejected. Now, you tell me, is there anybody that you know of that fits that category possibly? And this is why Bible scholars say, oh, my gosh, this is so compelling and powerful. This is why everybody, we just came through the Christmas season, and we, many of us turned to Luke chapter 2 to get our information about Jesus Christ being born. And you might have read in there at some point where it says, oh, yeah, Jesus was taken by his parents into the temple. And, and there was this guy named Simeon. And he says, I've been waiting here. I've been waiting for the long-awaited Messiah. And now here he is. Here's Jesus Christ. And you might be saying, well, how did this guy know? I mean, did God open his door to Hey, hey, Simeon, go hang out at the temple today because God's going to show up there. How did Anna, the prophetess who was there at that same time, she says, I've been, I've been waiting for the Messiah. God promised me in my lifetime I would see the Messiah. How did they know these things? You know how they knew these things? Sure, God could have shown up. But more than likely, they simply read the book. And they knew there was a span of time. Why did the wise men show up? Why did those three supposed wise men show up, right, and give gifts to Jesus Christ? The wise men came from Babylon. They were the same people who Daniel was in charge of. Why did they show up? Because there's a time frame, everybody, given by Daniel. That's why this is the most compelling prophecy proof positive that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah in 483 years. We've got a window of time that the Messiah can show up, and here he shows up. So if you're saying, oh, man, can I really believe that Jesus Christ is Savior? We have some very powerful clues from Almighty God that we can trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. This is incredible. So this is what we see here. Now, let's move to chapter 10 and finish this whole thing off. Basically, what we have in chapter 10 and what I really want to talk about this morning, everything else is just kind of setting it up. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all one vision. Chapter 10 is an introduction to the vision. Chapter 11 is the vision. And chapter 12 is the mop-up. It all happened in 536 B.C. Now, here's what you need to know. This chapter talks about a great war. Talks about a great war. 
Uh, Daniel is mourning here in this chapter. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 10. It says in the third year of Cyrus, that's 536 B.C., the king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. Its message was true and it concerned what? Concerned a great war. Very important. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. Why was he mourning? He's mourning for some reason. I ate no choice food. He's fasting again. No meat, no wine, touched my lips. I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. This was a way that many Jewish people would fast. They would just, you know, design, you know deny themselves a lot of personal whatever, and, and they would just focus in on God. Now, why is he mourning? At the beginning of Cyrus's reign, he had a decision to make whether or not he was going to release the Jewish people out of captivity to go back to Jerusalem. He decides to do it. He releases them. There are millions of Jewish people living in Babylon in slavery at that time. And out of the millions of people, you know how many people left to go back? About 50,000. And Daniel is crushed by that. What happens is, is to be a person of influence, you can't be okay and comfortable with status quo. I can become very comfortable quite easily, quite quickly, right? That's what happens. A person of influence doesn't settle for status quo. And Daniel's looking at this situation. The guy's in his mid-80s now, and he's completely, completely mourning the situation. So few go back to the city to rebuild it, and his heart is absolutely broken. Let's continue to read uh, verses 12 and 13. It's very important here. So, so, so. Everybody, what happens here is God shows up and he, he has something to say to him. And what, what's happening in these verses, not only is God there, but there's some angels there too. And don't get confused by that. There was multiple people and they're talking and addressing Daniel. 12 and 13. Then he continued, this person talking to him, this, this angel says, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding, right, for three weeks. He's been praying and fasting for three weeks, everybody. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Let's finish reading this out, and then I want to explain what's going on, because actually this is extraordinarily important to your life. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 10. So he said, so again, he's being talked to. Do you know why I've come to you, Daniel? Soon I'm going to return and fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me except Michael, your prince. Finally, let's just read chapter 12, verse number one, because it's important to the discussion here. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And that's all we need to read. Here's what I'd like you to fill in, if you can, real quick, please. Can you put God gets personal and emphatic as a result of determined prayer and fasting? God gets very personal with us and very emphatic with us as a result of determined prayer and fasting. He says, you have humbled yourself. When you see those words in Scripture, they commonly refer to somebody who is fasting. Because, he says, Daniel, everybody, and this is, I know this is a lot of crazy stuff that we're talking about, and sometimes it's hard to keep track of. What are you, shaggy goats and everything? All right, so if you just, here's the thing, what I really want to say to you with all this going on, and it's phenomenal with all these prophecies. But here's the thing, Daniel 10, 
um, is an amazing chapter. What we get in Daniel 10 is God is saying, okay, I want to show you, I want to peel back every time you pray. When you're in your car and you're praying, or you pray here, when we gather together, or you're sitting at your desk at work, or you're praying over your meal, or whenever you pray, I want to peel back the physical world, and I want to give you a glimpse of what's happening spiritually every single time you pray. And the first thing that's going to happen is the deceiver is going to come here in this place today and say, yeah, that happens when Daniel prays. That doesn't really happen when I pray. Okay, so we're going to get a peel back here. And here's the peel back. God gets very personal and emphatic as a result of determined prayer and fasting. So he's fasting this common expression. He's praying and fasting. Praying and fasting is not commanded in the Bible, but it sure does grab God's attention. His prayer goes unanswered. We're told here for three weeks. Why? We're told here why his prayer goes unanswered for three weeks. He says, because there's a great battle waging in the spiritual realm so you're praying oh god give me rent money and you're wondering god why didn't you give me the rent money and god says let's peel this thing back here's why a battle is raging against you whatever you're praying about it's a battle that's raging this is what he tells daniel and this is a glimpse here write this next one in prayer and fasting fuels the fight we're told in ephesians chapter 6 that we battle not against flesh and blood That's people, right? But against powers, authorities, rulers, and spiritual forces of evil. What what you get here in Daniel and what you get in Ephesians is not some random forces of evil running around in devil suits playing games with us. But what you get is a very organized, structured, determined group. A military operation of darkness that is set up against us. That's what all those words mean in Ephesians chapter 6. So he says this. He says, I battled with the prince of Persia. What is Persia? Persia is the world's superpower at the time. And what's being said to us is, is there is this demon force, this demon who is the prince of Persia, influencing the superpower of Persia and all the decisions that they make. And when he says, and then when I'm done with the prince of Persia, I'm going to have to deal with the prince of Greece. Why the prince of Greece? They're the next rising superpower. This is why we're getting all this information. And he tells us that Michael, the angel, is the guardian angel of the Jewish people. That's why he mentions that two different times. Hebrews 1.14 tells all of us that we all have a guardian angel. And we're told here, as the entire nation of Israel has an angel called Michael who guards them and who fights for them. Now, I want you to consider this when we talk about influence. We talk about the spiritual battle that's going on above. Think about the decisions that are going to be made in the days ahead of Daniel as he's thinking, as he's processing all this. Okay? This decision. Cyrus, should I release the Jewish people to go back to their homeland? Should I release them from slavery? There's There's a force of light and there's a force of darkness and they're battling that decision out. And he's saying, Daniel, your prayers are going to influence the outcome of that decision. There was a decision made later. Can we rebuild the city? King King of Persia, will you give us money and will you give us supplies and and give us safe passage back to do it? And there's a battle going on whether or not to say yes or to say no to that. They made a request. We would like to rebuild the temple. We can't rebuild the temple, king of Persia, unless you tell us we can rebuild the temple. And what's being said here, 
peel it back, everybody, is there's a battle in the spiritual world over the influence, to influence that king whether or not to say yes or no. Michael is battling with the king of Persia whether or not to say yes or no. Alexander the Great shows up at Jerusalem ready to destroy it, and there's a battle going on in the spiritual realm whether or not to say yes or no for all that. Antiochus Epiphanes, this guy would talk about, he hated Judaism. He wanted to rid it from this earth, and there's a battle going on. Esther, anybody ever read the book Esther? The book of Esther is all about murdering every single Jewish person who was living in the kingdom of Persia, which dominated the entire world. And what we're told here is there's a battle raging over that. Here's what we need to know. Our prayers affect the outcome of these major decisions of nations. They have influence over what is going on. I want to read you one last passage of the Bible, and I'm going to wrap this up, okay? Uh, Chapter 11, verses 25 to 32, and tell you a quick story from history. It says this, with a large army, we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? He's, he's the, one of the final rulers of the, of the Greek kingdom before Rome wipes them out, okay? He's one of the final rulers, and he's in charge of the area surrounding and around Israel, okay? With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. That's Egypt. The king of the south will wage war with a large and powerful army, but he will not be able to stand against the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provision will try to destroy his uh, army, but will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other. This is all historically true. The Greek king of Egypt and And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, they sit together and they lie to each other about an agreement they're going to make and they both break their agreement. Now, this is being said 400 years prior. And the Israeli people are now reading this in, in, in that time when it's happening and they're seeing, oh my gosh, all this is coming true. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil, they sit, they lie to each other. Verse 28, the king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth. And here's what I want you to see. But his heart will be set against what? The holy covenant. He's against Judaism. He's against the Bible. He will take action against it and return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. He invades Egypt then. This time, the outcome is going to be different from what was before. Ships from the western coastland will oppose him. He'll lose heart. He'll turn back. He'll vent his fury against the Holy Covenant, and he'll return and show favor, uh, and he'll return and show favor for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. I'm going to stop right there. Let me explain just historically what takes place. Antiochus Epiphanes, this ruler, this Greek ruler, okay, he goes down and he has a battle in Egypt against the Greek ruler down in Egypt. He wins that battle, and when he's on his way back, he's passing through Jerusalem, and he viciously attacks the Jewish people, and his hatred was toward the Bible and Judaism, and he slaughters 80,000 people, and the things they did are historic. Unbelievable what he did. So he massacres them. Now, two years later, he goes back to Egypt again because of an uprising that was going on there, and he goes back there ready to crush it. But we're told here in the prophecy that ships from the West show up. Who do you think shows up from the West? Anybody? Who, who could that be? What army shows up? Rome. Rome shows up. So what happens is the king of the south, look, so we're doing prophecy and we're doing historical stuff back and forth. The king, so, so the king of the south makes an alliance with the Roman. And so here's what happens, actually. Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the man, manifested one who has like pride, like all get out, shows up in town ready to destroy. And the Roman commander comes in 
and he meets them four miles outside the city. He hands them a letter, and the letter says, get your butt out of here now or you're dead. And Titus is standing there. They're all watching. Crowds of people watching. And the Roman commander takes something, I don't know, a stick or whatever, and he draws a circle around Antiochus. He says, give me your decision before you step foot out of this circle. Antiochus knew the power of Rome. He knew they were the superpower rising. He was scared to death. And so humiliated in front of thousands and thousands of people, he says, I'm leaving, and steps out of the cycle and goes, tail tucked underneath him. He goes. He's humiliated. Where does he where does he get all that anger out? He goes back to Jerusalem, and he is furious. He goes into the temple. He removes the altar. He sets up in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest is supposed to go one time a year. He puts an altar up there, a statue of Zeus. He takes a pig. He slaughters the pig, and he sprays the blood of the pig all over the temple. He tells people, if you circumcise your son, I will kill you. If I catch you with the Bible, I will kill you. If anybody honors the Sabbath, I will kill you. He finds a mother who had seven of her sons circumcised, and he takes those boys, he cuts out their tongues, and he sticks them in a frying pan and fries them before the mother's eyes. This is unbelievable. He goes to a small town outside of the city. He sends one of his emissaries. And he's forcing every priest of Judaism to eat pig flesh and to bow down and to make sacrifices and to honor Zeus. He goes to town. There's an old boy there, a Jewish priest by the name Mattathias Maccabeus. He says, I won't do it. A villager steps up and says, I'll do it to save the whole village. Mattathias, this old priest, gets angry, pulls a sword, kills the villager, kills Antiochus' emissary, and sets off a revolt called the Maccabean War. They invent something. They're the inventors of something called guerrilla warfare. They fight against this powerful army, and they win. They run them out of town. His son, Mattathias, dies. His son, Judas Maccabeus, takes up the fight. Judas is next. He's called the Hammer. Great nickname. Called the Hammer. He runs them out of town. I know I'm out of time. He runs them out of town, everybody. He goes back to the temple. He rededicates the temple to God. He lights the menorah, right? You all know the lamp that sits in the temple? Lights it. There's special oil that lights the menorah. They only have one day's worth. It takes eight days to make more oil. They light it. They pray, God, please keep this thing lit. For eight days, a miracle happens, and the menorah never goes out until they're able to get more oil. And we call that miracle, anybody? Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Here's what I really want you to think about here in conclusion. A person of influence is a person of character. A person of influence, everybody, is a person of character. They're consistent, they're honest, reliable, they're just like Daniel. A person of influence fights powerfully through fasting and prayer. Daniel, through all his life, Daniel chapter 1, what do we see him doing? He's fasting, he's praying. He's not giving up. Fast and what do we see him doing at the end when he's in his mid-80s at the end of the book? He's a still fasting and praying. Think about this. Forces of light and forces of darkness are seeking to influence nations in this world today and the decisions that nations make your prayers influence the outcome forces of darkness are fighting everybody to seek to influence your family your prayers have a difference in the outcome i want to tell you one story and then we're going to take communion i was uh i was meeting with somebody many uh well a number of years back maybe five or six years ago and was talking to this person this was not a god thing this was just a natural thing. They said a few things that led me to know that they really wanted to get married. And I picked up as a clue and I said, do you, do you, would you really, would you really like to get married? 
And they said, actually, yes. And we have been talking about something totally different, but they gave me some clues, and I said that. And the moment they said that, here's where the God thing happened to me. I felt like God said, you know what? It's my will for them to get married too, but there's a great war waging against them, fighting against my goodwill. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's my will for them to get married. I'm not sure they ever will because there's a massive war going on against them. I talk to people who married couples who their hearts break because they really want a child. And I feel like God's saying, yep, that's my will. It's my will this person gets married. It's my will this couple has a child. It's my will to straighten out these finances for this person. But you need to know this, Daniel chapter 10. Peel it back. There's a great war that wages against it. And our prayers and our fasting affects the outcome. What we've done in the past is we've called, the church has, we said, let's have special days of prayer and fasting. And I was thinking about this week, and here's what God prompted me with. He says, no, I don't want you to initiate prayer and fasting in the church. I want the church to facilitate it this time. God's going to move on some of your hearts, and you're going to rise up and say, you know what? I've got a need. I got, here's my need in this area. I've got a need. I want to pray for these people. I'm, I want to call a special day of prayer and fasting. You come to us, we'll help you facilitate that, make it happen. Your community group, some of your community group might, you know, man, we got a bunch of people, might, we're going to come together. Some of you might say, I don't, have, I don't have a big need, but you know what? I'm a part of a family, and I know somebody in my family has a big need here in this church. And so I call a day of prayer and fasting for finances or for marriage or for having a child or for broken or health issues or whatever it might be. We're not going to initiate, but we'll facilitate that. All right, for those helping the community, if you'll come up. Here's what I want to say about communion before we take it. The greatest warrior of all time is Jesus Christ. You know something, everybody? Wimps don't shed their blood for other people. They won't even shed their blood for themselves. Wimps don't do that. Warriors do that. Warriors will shed their blood for somebody else. And the person of greatest influence that ever has walked this planet Earth before is Jesus Christ. And he shed his blood for us. And that's what we celebrate in communion. We say, very seriously. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We consider where we stand in our relationship with God and what God is prompting us to do. We consider where we are. Have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ? We take that self-assessment. And I encourage you, in these few moments, we take communion, would you be sensitive to listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life? What is he prompting you to do? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, for what we celebrate here at this moment. Lord, I pray that your blessing would be upon the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' holy name, amen. I want to encourage you, if you would like to come to take communion, to come whenever you would like and uh, to take a few moments to sit back in your seat and think about what God says to you.